0: I know not all of our moms are here this morning, but those of you who are moms, would you stand to your feet? Because we do want to honor you here. There you go. Oh, come on, you guys. You can do better than that. So stay, stay, stay. Stay standing, stay standing, stay standing because I, I want to. So mom, so stay standing. I know you don't like attention, but mom, stay standing because we want to pray over you here this morning. If you're around by somebody who is a mom, would you just put your hand out towards them? Place your hand on them. Let's just pray for them here. Father, we thank you for these mothers. And we all do have moms, and whether they're here today or not, Father, we recognize the impact that our moms have and these women that are around us this morning. We recognize the impact that they have made and continue to make in the, the world that you have given them. And so, Father, we speak blessing on these moms. God, would you strengthen them, encourage them, give them new vision, whether they're grandmas, whether they're young or old, or just starting this thing out, that, Father, you would, by your Spirit, just infuse life into them, courage inside of them, vision and purpose for being a mom and a grandma. And God, we as their friends and family, we just declare blessing. We release your blessing and our blessing on them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Once again, come on, people. Let's give our hands up to these moms. All right, get your Bibles out this morning. Go to Romans chapter 13. We're starting a new series here this morning that we're calling Open your eyes. And we're going to start here in Romans chapter 13, verse 11. It says, but make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted and taking care of all your day-by-day obligations that you lose track of the time and doze off oblivious to God. Now, how many of you admit that you kind of get lost in all your day-to-day stuff? <laughs> you get overwhelmed in all those types of things. That's what he's talking about here. The night is about over. Dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. God is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work He began when we first believed. We can't afford to waste a minute, must not squander these precious daylight hours, in frivolity, and indulgence, and sleeping around, and dissipation, and bickering, and grabbing everything in sight. Get out of bed and get dressed. Don't loiter and linger, waiting until the very last minute. Dress yourselves in Christ and be up and about. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down this phrase or underline this in your Bible. It's in verse 12. Be up and awake to what God is doing. How many know that God is doing something? All right. He doesn't slumber, he doesn't sleep, but he is moving in our world. He's moving in your life, he's moving in your family, he's moving all around us. But the question is whether or not we're going to be aware of it, whether or not we're going to be a part of what he is doing. For those of you who've been around here a while, we. I think from my perspective, this last year has been an amazing year of God stirring our hearts, and I think in our church, there's been a spiritual awakening that's happened with so many of us, and I think this is such a huge thing because for so many of us, what life does to us, whether it's the busyness of life or whether... It's the pains and the hurts and the losses and the tragedies that we experience here in life. What happens to so many of us is that it deafens our ears and it blinds our eyes and it hardens our hearts to the reality of God and what he is doing in this world. And so we end up just kind of going through the motions of life. At the same point, we're completely oblivious to what it is that God is doing. And so we become asleep to the reality of God and what he wants to do in and through our lives. But over this past year, what I've seen is this kind of spiritual awakening that's been happening on uh, the spiritual stirring that's been happening in so many of our lives. And, and so I believe that for so many of us here this morning, you've been awakened up. There's something that's been stirring inside of your heart. So what I've been doing, I've been praying um, and asking God this question, now what? Now what? Now... God, that you've been stirring and awakening us now that you've been exposing the hurts and the pains and the offenses from our past, now that you've been healing us and delivering us and setting us free, now that we're experiencing God and touching his reality and hearing his voice and and there's kind of this newness and this freshness that's beginning to stir in our hearts, now what? What? Because I fully believe that the essence of these spiritual awakenings or the spiritual stirrings in our hearts is not just to give you a buzz. I don't think that's God's business. He's not just to give you a spiritual buzz. But there's a purpose for why he awakens us and stirs our hearts. And the reason why he does this is to awaken us to do something or to go into something. And that's what I want to talk about in this series. It's just what, is it, what does this involve us? How does it involve us? And, and so if you have your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 58. And if you know your Bible very well, Isaiah 58 is known as the fasting chapter. So if you've ever prayed and fasted, you probably have read this chapter because more than any other chapter in the Bible, this chapter has to deal with fasting. But this morning, I actually want to read it to you out of the message paraphrase. Because I want you to try to hear it maybe from a different perspective. If you've, if you've read this chapter before, I want you to hear it from kind of a new voice. If you've not read it, then you're, you're, you're in great company here because we're going to do this here together. But you need to know that this is a paraphrase. And A paraphrase is not a literal translation. A translation is when we take the original um, text, the original language, and we translate it word for word so we have correct accuracy. A paraphrase is where they take longer, more words, and they put the thought into it from our modern-day language and our culture so that we can try to understand the overall thought. And so that's what the message does. And so I want to read it to you here, starting in verse 1. It says, Shout, a full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet-blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right living people, law abiding, God honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do and love having me on their side? But they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day I'm after a day to show off humility, to put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I am after, to break the chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, and cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this, and the lights will turn on, and your lives will turn around at once." Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. If I get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I'll always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. If you watch your step on the Sabbath and don't use my holy day for personal advantage, if you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration, if you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money, running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says so. Isn't that a great chapter? Now, how many of you like to go fishing? Any of you? Let me see your hands. All of you are the ones, the fishermen in our, in our midst here. How many of you have seen these little guys? Have you seen these little guys before? <clears throat> this is a glow in the dark bait. And they're kind of an interesting little invention because this one actually goes in, in, uh, in more of the ocean setting, it's a saltwater bait. And so it's used to try to attract those fish that feed by sight. And so there are fish in the ocean that are lured to these little glowing bait. And so what you do is you put your hook, obviously, on it, just like any other lure, and you cast it out into the darkness of the ocean. And then those fish that are attracted by sight then are drawn to this glow-in-the-dark bait. It's kind of an interesting thing, but what I want you to notice here this morning is that the purpose of this glow-in-the-dark bait, the purpose is for it to be put into the darkness, because if you don't put this in the darkness, it just looks like every other bait and it doesn't fulfill its function. It doesn't do what it was created to do. But when you put it into the darkness, now all of a sudden it becomes very effective at being able to reach those things that are in the darkness. Well, look at this in Isaiah chapter 58. Verse 10, it says, Your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. Now look what God is saying here. Because God is describing for us that he wants to pour his light into our lives in such a way that just like this glow-in-the-dark bait, that your life begins to glow. But listen, folks, when you start glowing, for your light to be effective, it has to be put into the darkness. Look at verse 7. It says, What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your home, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this, and the lights will turn on, and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help, and I'll say, here I am. So if you get rid of unfair practices and quit blaming victims and quit gossiping about other people's sins, and if you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourself to the down and out, your lies will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadow lies will be bathed in sunlight. You know, over my lifetime, I've probably read Isaiah 58 probably a hundred times. But every time I've read this chapter, my focus has been on the aspects either of fasting which this chapter is known for us really trying to understand what it means to pray and fast, or the incredible promises that God describes for us, the benefits that he has for us that are mentioned here in this chapter. But over the last several months, I've been rereading this chapter. And and as I've read this, I can't help but to think that something fundamental has been missing in our understanding of the gospel. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he says it this way. He says, faith today is treated as something that only should make us different. Not that actually does or can make us different. In reality, we vainly struggle against the evils of this world, waiting to die and go to heaven. Somehow, we've gotten the idea that the essence of faith is entirely a mental and an inward thing. I look at this. And I think, where have we missed it? Where have we as individuals, where have we as the American church, where have we missed it? Where is our hole in this understanding of the gospel? Now, that word gospel in the original Greek language literally means good tidings or good news. Webster's defines gospel this way. Glad tidings, especially concerning salvation and the kingdom of God as announced to the world by God christ the reason why the gospel is such good news is because that of jesus's death and resurrection we now can be reconciled with god you can actually have a relationship with god you can hear his voice you can walk in his light you can experience his healing the bible describes that when you've asked jesus to come into your life when you ask for forgiveness of your sins that you then are reconciled with god and he declares then that you are righteous One who is now in right standing with God. And he looks at you and he calls you justified. The way that I always remember what that word means is a big word in in the scripture. But what it means is how it sounds. Just as if I'd never sinned that's how God sees you when you ask him to come into your life when you ask for forgiveness he calls you justified just as if I'd never sinned that's how God looks at you and so that's why we don't have to try to earn God's love and try to prove to him that we're good enough or worthy enough of his love or his working in our life that's the good news but the good news that Jesus proclaimed had a greater reach that went beyond the forgiveness of sins and for our salvation because this gospel also signified the coming of the kingdom of God here on earth. And in Matthew chapter 5, it's what's known as really Jesus's first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We describe it as the Beatitudes. But here in this chapter, Jesus begins to describe the characteristics of this kingdom that he was bringing here on earth. And it was going to shake everything up. It was going to turn everything upside down. Our thinking, how we do things, how we interact with God, how we view God. He was going to say it's going to be turn it all upside down. Look at this in verse 3. It said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Now look at what Jesus is describing here, because here in these verses, Jesus was speaking about this kingdom that was coming, this kingdom that he was bringing here on earth, this kingdom of one in which the poor and the sick and the grieving and and the, the widows and the orphans and the cripples and the slaves and the lepers and the aliens, those that Jesus would later describe as the least of these, that these would be lifted up and embraced by God. But somehow, I think we've, we've interpreted that to believe that that's really not going to happen here on earth, that this is just something that's going to happen when we finally get to heaven. So somehow, this grand vision that Jesus came to proclaim, to preach, and to demonstrate, somehow this grand vision, I think, has been dimmed and diminished for us today. But I want you to show, show you some things here this morning because I think this is really important because Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of heaven was a call For what God wanted to do here on earth. Look at this in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went through the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, here in these verses, Jesus was speaking of these great promises of God to those who would accept and believe and embrace the Messiah and the kingdom of God that was coming. In essence, this became Jesus' mission statement. And there's three components to Jesus' mission statement I want to draw your attention to here this morning. The first we see is the proclamation of the good news of salvation. The proclamation of the good news of salvation. This is the first component of Jesus' mission statement. Verse 18 again says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Now of all the components, this is the component that probably most of us here in this room are familiar with. As a matter of fact, this is probably the reason why you're even here today is because someone spoke to you preach to you about the goodness, this, this good news of Jesus Christ coming to seek and to save the lost. And if we would just ask for forgiveness and turn our lives to him, that we could experience this then for ourselves. This is that first component. This is the essence of the Billy Graham Worldwide Crusades and the Campus Crusades, little pamphlet, the Four Spiritual Laws, and the Jesus Film Projects, and the Evangelism Explosion um, that happened all over the world, and the Reinhard Bonnke Crusades. All of these are examples of tools and efforts that have been a, a, incredibly effective in our world today about teaching us and, 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 and preaching to us about our, the forgiveness of our sins and this relationship that we can have with God. And as a result, millions and millions and millions of people worldwide have turned their lives over to Jesus Christ as a result of this first component. But what I want you to notice here this morning is that this was just one of the three components of Jesus' mission statement. The second component Jesus' mission is that we see a reference to a compassion and healing for the sick and those who and sorrowful. We see a reference to a compassion and healing for the sick and the sorrowful. Again, verse 18, it says, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and recovery of sight to the blind. These References indicate that the good news included a concern not just for your spiritual well-being, but also for your physical well-being as well. And when you think about Jesus' ministry, not only did he preach about the kingdom of God, but he came and demonstrated the kingdom of God by healing the sick and the lame, by showing empathy for the the poor, by feeding the hungry, and by literally restoring the sight of the blind. That's the second component of Jesus' mission. And then the third component of Jesus' mission is that we see a majestic commitment to justice. A majestic commitment to justice, verse 18, to proclaim the liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Every one of these descriptions are a reference to the mission that Jesus had to set free those who have been oppressed and victimized by injustice, whether it's political injustice or social injustice or economic injustice. And that's the third component to Jesus' mission. Now look at all three of these components together. The first is the proclamation of the good news of salvation. The second is the compassion and healing of the sick and the sorrowful. And then the third is a commitment to justice. This was Jesus' mission. And this is the whole gospel. And it's the foundation for a social revolution. It's the foundation that challenges the status quo in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhood, and in our world today. It's the foundation that literally has the power to change The entire world. This is that whole gospel. And so if it was Jesus' mission, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that means it is your mission. It's my mission, which means it's also the mission of the church. This is why we are here. This is how we're then supposed to live our lives. Look again at Isaiah 58, verse 1. It says, shout, a full-throated shout. Hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family Jacob with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And love having me on their side. Does that sound like the American church or what? Verse 3, but they also complain, why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line in your fast days is this prophet, You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think that this is the kind of fast day I'm after? A day to show off humility? To put a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that a fasting, a a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I'm after to break the chains of injustice to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed and cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill clad, being available to your families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, Here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourself to the down and out, your lies will begin to glow in the darkness and your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. Could it be any clearer, folks? It's pretty specific, isn't it? But somehow, some way, I think we've made it all about us. It's all about me and what I can get out of this. It's all about what I need God to do in my life, what we need God to do in our lives. And somewhere, when it comes to the poor and the oppressed and the down and out and the marginalized, somehow I think we've turned a blind eye to this aspect of the gospel. It's as if we've taken our Bibles and we've cut out all the scriptures that have to do with poverty and justice and oppression. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what I did. I cut out all verses that have to do with poverty and justice and oppression in our Bible. There are over 2,000, keep going, Alan. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that have to do with poverty and justice and oppression. 2,000. And I literally cut out every one of those verses from my Bible. They're right here. And what's left is a Bible that is filled with holes. Some of these chapters barely hold together. It's tattered. But you know what? I think this has become our American Bible. Now... We don't literally tear it out, do we? But we don't live by it. We want to kind of ignore this aspect of the gospel. Sure, I want to be sure, I want to go to heaven, and so I, this needs to be about me. But we've forgotten the other two aspects of the gospel here. Richard Stearns, who's the president of World Vision, he says it this way. He says, we have shrunk Jesus to the size where we can save our soul, but now don't believe he can change the world. Listen, the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to proclaim and to demonstrate, is intended to change and to challenge every aspect of the fallen world in the here and now. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he answered them this way in Matthew 6, verse 9 and 10. He said, our Father in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth. On earth. Where? On earth. On earth as it is in heaven. See, the kingdom of God is not meant to be a way for us to leave this world, but it's meant instead to be actually redeem this world. Our lives are to impact this world. Our lives are to glow and effectually affect the world around us. Look at this in John chapter 4. I think it's a practical example of this because here in John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling with his disciples from Judea to Galilee. But in order to get from Judea to Galilee, they had to deal with this issue of Samaria. There's a map to this if you want to look here on, on the screen. This is the map. So you can see Judea in, this, in the bottom part, Galilee up on top. And so if you're traveling from Judea to Galilee, Samaria stands right in the way. The problem with this was there was this deep, fierce, long-standing hatred between Jews and Samaritans. And it went all the way back to the time of Joseph. And so the Samaritans were actually publicly cursed in the Jewish synagogues. As a matter of fact, the Samaritans couldn't even serve in, as witnesses in Jewish courts. And not only that, to the Jews, the Samaritans could not, were excluded from the afterlife, and there was nothing that the Samaritans could do to be converted to Judaism. This is how deep it went within the Jewish people. And so the Jews even believed that they would be contaminated if they traveled through their region. And so as a result, they would go around it, even though it was not the direct way. They would go out of their way to to completely um, go around the area of Samaria. And so here in John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling with his disciples from Judea to Galilee. And look at verse 4. It says... Now he had to go through Samaria. It's interesting language. Because notice it says had to. In the natural, there was no have to. Because in the natural, Jewish culture, everybody everybody walked around it. Everybody avoided it. And so that's what every good Jew would do. So there was no reason to have to go through Samaria. But the verse says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was leading Jesus forward, and the Holy Spirit was leading Jesus through this area. This this area was undesirable to every Jew at that time, and there in the middle of this hostile, undesirable territory, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well, and he asks her this unthinkable question. Verse 7, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into the town to buy food." The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But Jesus completely ignores this question, and he begins to speak into her life and begins to reveal personal things about her life that no one else knew. And it was so pointed that she began to wonder if Jesus really was the promised Messiah. Verse 27. Just in the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asks, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said it to the people. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of town and made their way toward him. And then Jesus tells his surprised and completely prejudiced disciples, verse 35, do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now who was the harvest that Jesus was talking about? It was the Samaritans. Now think about that because to the Jesus's disciples, the Samaritans were the problem. To Jesus's disciples, the Samaritans were those that they hated. To Jesus' disciples, the Samaritans were not what they were looking for. As a matter of fact, the Samaritans were one that were in the way. But you know what? I think so many times God will appear to you in ways that you think are in the way. You are looking for the harvest to be somewhere else. You're looking for the harvest to be something else, to be someone else, when all the while Jesus is saying the harvest is right here. It's right now. See, folks, that's what, that's what he's talking about. The harvest is here, but you know what? It might show up in your life as an inconvenience. The harvest is here, but it might show up while you're in line at H-E-B. The harvest is here, but it might show up while you're relaxing and just trying to get a bite to eat up at Angel's this afternoon. That's where the harvest might show up. See, I think for so many Christians, they're talking about revival, and they're praying for a revival, and the expectation is that God will do something here in the midst of our four walls of a church. When all the while, Jesus is saying the harvest is there. You see what I'm saying? Here the Samaritans were coming out of the city. The harvest is out there, which means while, while, while we're sitting here trying to wait for something to happen, God's saying, go, go, you go, you go and pray for those who are down and out. Go and pray for the sick. Go and pray for those who are dying. Go and pray for the poor and the marginalized. Meet with them. Talk with them. Those who are depressed. Those who are down and out. And bring God's healing to them. And look at the result. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words... Many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. See, folks, we've got to stop projecting that the harvest is in the future, that revival is in the future. We have to see that the harvest is here. It's right now, but you have to go. We have to go and get it. See, folks, the kingdom of God, let me say it again. The kingdom of God, what Jesus came to preach and to teach, was intended to change and to challenge everything in our world, your world, my world, right here in the here and now. And so, yes, it first requires that we repent and turn our lives to God and surrender our lives to Jesus. And, yes, this world will never be perfect. As a result, if you read the rest of your, your, your Bible, it actually, it actually gets worse. The world gets worse, okay? So it's not about this world becoming perfect. Don't get disillusioned with this world because Jesus said it's going to have difficulty. It's going to get bad before it gets better here. Don't let that be your focus because even in the midst of all of this, Jesus still tells us to go into the world and demonstrate the reality of the kingdom of God by lifting up the poor and the marginalized, by challenging injustice wherever you find it, by rejecting the worldly values that are found within our culture and by loving our neighbors as ourselves. And then when we do this, look at what God's promises are for us, what will happen in your life. Isaiah 58, verse 8. Do this, and the light will turn on. Your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help, and I'll say, Here I am. Your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. Do you see it? Isn't it interesting, and I'm projecting just a little bit, but isn't it interesting, probably for so many of us, there's been something missing when we talk about the gospel? Because for so many of us, it's become egocentric. It's become about us. It's become about me. And the gospel is so much bigger than any one of us. And you need to know as we start this this series, I want to ask you to kind of take this journey with me for the next six weeks. We'll be talking about this for the next six weeks. I don't have a clear conclusion to this. I have more questions than I think answers. But I want you to join me in this journey and begin to ask God, okay, God, what is this for me? What is it, it? What's my life supposed to look like? Because what, here's what I do know, even though I have a lot of questions. Here's what I do know: because I am convinced that through a seemingly insignificant people, and a seemingly insignificant part of the world, God will do the extraordinary. I'm convinced of that, folks. So you may feel insignificant, but well, let me tell you that God can do the extraordinary through your life. All it takes is a man or a woman to says, "I'm available, God. However you want to use me, whatever you want to do, I'm." available. I want you to ask close your eyes, if you would, please, as we finish up here this morning. Father, I ask, as I've been asking over these last several months, the God that you would do something in our hearts, that you would take us beyond just what we experience ourselves, the God that you would take our lives and that our lives would be spread out beyond just our own four walls and beyond just our little spheres of influence, that, God, you begin to stir something in our hearts, that, God, as you have been doing something in us, that, God, now you begin to do something through us, that, God, as you pour your light in our lives and we begin to glow, that, God, then in turn, we would then take that into the darkness and let your light shine through us in such a way that people would see something different and their attention would then go to you. That you would touch other people's lives through our lives. That God, we would be men and women that make a difference. That our lives would have purpose that goes beyond just us. That God, that you would use us in our workplace, that you would use us in the stores and in those H-E-B lines and even as we're sitting on Highway 71 stuck, that God, you would even use every one of those situations, that God, the light that you're pouring inside of us would begin to glow and Lord, that we would be effective, Lord, that we would make a difference in this world. Open our eyes, Father, to see things differently. Give us a different perspective. Show us those who are, the down and out and the poor and the marginalized and the downcast. God, show us those who are poor in heart and poor in spirit. And Lord, let your spirit work mightily in us, I pray. We're going to take communion here this morning. And we do this at the end of our service every day, every Sunday. And, and I want to again just invite you to this table. Jesus said, as often As you come together, do this in remembrance of me. And this is a time that we can remember really the first component of Jesus' mission statement, that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's where we get to be included, every one of us right here. This is not about anybody else now. This is just about you. God wants you to know him. God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to work in your life. He wants to give your life purpose so you can have a destiny for your life. So this is where the question gets asked because Jesus says, I have given my life. Now will you give me your life? The Bible describes on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it and he gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup after the supper and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. This is why we can know God. This is why you can hear his voice. This is why your sins have been, can be forgiven. No matter what you have done, God wants to forgive you. God wants to have this amazing relationship with you. This is his question. And when we take communion, we're saying, okay, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving your life for me. And yes, I make a decision to follow you. How we're going to do this, there's two stations in front of the two sections here. You're gonna exit from your right and circle around. You'll take a piece of bread and dip it into the juice and circle back there. We'll start in the front row and go all the way back. You don't have to be a member of this church. We celebrate open communion, which means this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then this table is open for you. Let's do this together. If you would just stand to your feet here as we finish. just ask if you would grab a hold of the person's hand on either side of you, across the aisle if you would and just kind of link up here and I want you to do something I want you to pray for the people that are on your left and right don't pray about you pray about the people on your left and your right you may know them or you may not, it's okay but just pray for them as you would want somebody to pray for you it's always a good start, okay so Father weep right now we take the time to pray for the people on our left and our right here. God, we know you're doing something in their life. We don't always know what. but God, we know you're doing something. And so, Father, would you just continue to stir their hearts, continue to awaken them up to your reality and what you're doing in and what you want to do through their lives. God, that they would experience you in a real and tangible way And just as that Samaritan woman at the well met Jesus personally, Father, we pray for the people on our left and right, that they would encounter Jesus in a real and personal way. That even through this week, that God, that you would meet them. The people on our left and right, that you would meet them right where they are. And whatever's going in their life, Lord, we pray that you would work. Lord, we pray for healing for their bodies. God, heal and restore them physically. God, we pray for their their minds, that you would heal and restore the thoughts and the torment and the confusion that may be going on in their their thinking. God, would you heal their hearts and the heartache and the hurt and and the stuff that kind of accumulates in our heart. Would you bring healing there? And Lord, this week, we pray that in everything that they would do, that they would find you. They just keep finding you over and over and over. That God, they would find purpose in what you're doing. God, open doors. Let your favor be upon them in their workplace in everything that they do and say. Now, I want you to speak blessing over them. You can just repeat this after me, but I want you to just speak this blessing over them. Now, may God bless you. Say it. And keep you. And may God make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may God lift up his face upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right.